What's up, everyone, and welcome to the CBiz Show. Welcome back to the CBiz Show, and welcome to episode two, everyone. I'm your host, Colin Bish. Uh, before we get into the news and um, just basically mull over everything that's happened in sports in the past week, because there's been a lot, I just wanted to say before we got into anything, I'm very, very thankful for all of you guys that showed support. You know, whether you shared my podcast online or you would listen to it or you did both, whether you're family, friends, or I don't even know you at all, doesn't matter. I just want to say thank you to you guys so much. You guys truly, truly made my day um, seeing the amount of when I saw the amount of love that I was getting on my podcast. So I just wanted to say thank you guys for the outpouring of support and love for the podcast it truly truly like i can't even put into words how much it means to me i'm so very thankful for you all of you guys and i'm so super excited to keep this thing rolling into next week and i'm i'm, I'm just excited i'm and i'm thankful I, I just thank you guys so much uh with that with all that being said though getting right into the news um starting with basketball uh big news came out this morning from toronto as head coach Nick Nurse was fired by the Toronto Raptors after five seasons at the helm. If you remember, he started with the Raptors in 2019 where he led them to an NBA championship. It was the first time an NBA team outside of America had won the NBA title. Uh, though I could be wrong about that, but I be- but maybe that's right. I, I don't know. You guys let me know, though. Um, and the next year, he won Coach of the Year in a season where people felt like they were going to take a step back because Kawhi Leonard had, was gone, but they actually ended up getting the second seed in the East, though they did lose in the second round in the bubble to the Boston Celtics. And the next few years after that, the next three years, like they just really weren't that good. Um, they kind of just were in between. They're just, they were just pretty much in the middle, like not good enough to compete for a championship, not good enough to, or not bad enough to compete for top draft picks or even lottery picks. They were kind of just, very much in the middle like like almost stuck in the mud in a way and they did get scotty barnes the one year but outside of that they just haven't really been that impressive the past few years which which probably was um the was probably just led up to them wanting to go in a different direction from nick nurse and i don't think he could have done anything else for that franchise um except when obviously win another title because as Tom Brady says, the next ring is always the best one, or something to that degree. But um, he brought an NBA title to a team in a year where their whole situation looked dire. If you guys remember the previous season, 2018, the Raptors had gotten swept by Cleveland and LeBron James again. And they went through a whole, they, they just went through a whole turmoil. Dwayne Casey got fired after winning coach of the year, mind you. DeMar DeRozan got traded for Kawhi Leonard. Nobody really knew what to expect any anything. And then Toronto ends up um, becoming the second seed in the East, going to the Eastern Conference Finals, takes care of the MVP Giannis and the Bucks. Was the MVP that year? I, I think he was, but I'm not sure. Correct me if I'm wrong. They go to the NBA Finals, defeat a hobbled Golden State Warriors team, and win their first title. Then the year after that, they were really good, but um, again, they got bounced in the second round in the bubble by the Celtics. And then the last few years, they just haven't really done much. So I feel like it. It, it, it does it suck to see Nick Nurse go? Yes, because of how much he did for that franchise. But 
it, it also was kind of to be expected, to be honest with you. Um, right now, uh, Toronto is looking at former Boston Celtics coach Ime Odoka as a possible suitor. Um, he has a close relationship with the Raptors general manager, right, uh, um, Masai Ujiri. So that could honestly be pretty good. Obviously, um, Udoka's uh, reputation has definitely been marred by what happened prior to this season when he ended up getting fired for breaking conduct to the team or or what they said was like conduct conduct detrimental to the team, something like that. And then Joe Mazzulla took over and Udoka hasn't really done much. But regardless, he did lead uh, the Boston Celtics to a NBA Finals, which is impressive despite what he's done. So if they were able to get Toronto or if they were able to get Udoka to the Toronto Raptors, I feel like that would be a good move. Um, and it would be very important for Ime Udoka to go to the Raptors because it could probably be a really big swing in this year for the Toronto Raptors because right now they're at a very pivotal point in their franchise history. Well, not history, but they're at a pivotal point nonetheless. Um, Fred Van Fleet, Jakob Pertl, Gary Trent Jr., they're all free agents and the Lum and the extension of Pascal Siakam is definitely looming. It's definitely going to be a very big uh, offseason for the Toronto Raptors, whether they get Udoka, they re-sign any of those players that I mentioned, they extend Pascal. It's going to be big to see what happens. And as for Nick Nurse, right now he's probably looking to be a uh, possible suitor for the Houston Rockets head coaching job. But there's a lot of suitors for that job already. I'm pretty sure uh, Frank Vogel um, interviewed for that job. Former Hornets head coach James Borrego interviewed for that uh, job too. So we'll see what happens. And But to Nick Nurse, great five years in Toronto. Um, you know, what else can you say? Uh, I think the day I rec I think the day I recorded my first episode on Monday was the day that this happened. Was in Game Two between the Sacramento Kings and the Golden State Warriors, uh, fourth quarter or third quarter. I it, it was in the second half, but uh, after the a Kings player missed a shot and a Warriors player got the rebound, Demonte Simonis, Kings center, fell down, and as he fell down, he appeared to grab on to um, Draymond Green's leg. And then Draymond Green ended up stomping on DeMontis Sabonis, which ended up leading to uh, Green getting a flagrant two. He got ejected. And then he was recently suspended for the uh, Game 3. This, the Game 3 last night, actually. We'll get to that. But I did want to bring this up because of how big it was. Um, before we get into all that, uh, the, the Kings won that game, 114-106. DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox each had 24. Steph really struggled from three in that game. He went three of 13 from three. Golden State's bench wasn't playing well. Um, and basically to, to just mull over the situation, I think, we both, I think we have to understand that both guys were very much in the wrong, right? This is, I'll read this to you guys. And this is something that DeMontis Sabonis actually said after the game. Quote, when I fell, I was protecting myself, end quote. If you watch the video, you can see that as he goes down, he looks to be wrapping his arms around, around Green's legs to prevent him from moving. Now, I may be a different person from DeMontis Sabonis, so I don't know if this is how I deal with it, but 
if somebody is if if somebody when, when you fall down and somebody's above you i don't protect myself from them if they're about to fall on me by grabbing their leg i may like push them i might try to like prevent them from falling on me by like putting my arms up or my or, or trying to like catch them or whatever but there was nothing that indicated to me when watching that back that draymond green was like before he stomped before he stomped on him right before he stomped on him nothing to in that moment when Simonas fell and he grabbed uh green's leg it looked like it, it, nothing there looked to me like um draymond was trying to attack him uh prior to him you know stomping on him which by the way is wrong in its own right i just think that like people saying like sabonis is innocent is just wild because because it clearly looked like he was trying to grab onto draymond green's leg which is dirty in its own way which is very dirty and i'm 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 pretty sure there's a clip of sabonis doing the same thing to Clay Thompson, like grabbing hit, trying or at least trying to grab his leg. So I mean, am I saying that like Sabonis is dirty? You know, not really. But despite that, like it's just, uh, it, it's I don't know. I just feel like both guys are in the wrong, right? Um, and as for Draymond Green, like it, it's always a constant with him that he's going to do something dirty questionable and he's not going to do something questionable he's definitely going to say something that's questionable that's just draymond green who he is but for though there's been people going around saying that the reason that the only or the only reason or if not the only reason but the biggest reason that draymond got suspended for uh was not because he had stomped on another player but because of his past like I don't care if a player is like like an archangel of heaven. I don't care if he's the devil himself. I don't care who, who I don't care like who this player is. If you stomp on a guy in a basketball game, you probably get suspended. Reputation or not. Like what it like I just saw um former NBA player Matt Barnes sit making that argument like, oh the only reason that Draymond got suspended was because of his reputation. No, he got suspended because he stomped on a guy. Like, yeah, was it wrong for Sabonis to try and grab his leg or look like it grabbies or look to grab his leg? Yes. Do you stomp on him? No. You just walk away. You just walk away. But Draymond decided, you know what? I'll just stomp on this guy. Like, why? It, it, like, yeah, Draymond has a bad reputation. Everybody knows this. But it's not the reason he got suspended. It could have been a reason, but not as big as a reason as him stomping a guy like i don't understand how people are this stupid or n rather not stupid i don't understand how people just like don't have common sense like this like huh like you, there's no way somebody th sits down after seeing that and thinking huh you know what dream on only got suspended because of his reputation what if it if if an if a notorious good guy in the nba like think of a think of like a guy in the NBA who like never gets into trouble, who's just always really nice and never really says anything. He just plays ball, right? If he stomps on a guy, if he stomps on a guy, regardless if he has no reputation of being a dirty player or not, he'll probably get some type of uh, some type of punishment from the league for doing that. And what's that type of punishment? A suspension. So did. 
could um Draymond's reputation have played a part into this? Certainly, but it's not the exact reason like Matt Barnes is saying. Like it's like Draymond has a reputation. Yes, we get it. But like if any other player would have done that, it, it, it would have stomped on another player. Did exactly what Draymond did. They probably would have gotten the same punishment that Draymond got. So just cut it out with this whole narrative that Draymond's a victim or whatever. Draymond knows what... Uh, it doesn't matter what Draymond... If he tried to defend himself after game two, Draymond knows what he did was wrong, okay? And I'm sure most people in that organization with the Warriors know what Draymond did was wrong. But uh, don't try to defend him. Don't make him look like a victim. He's been doing this a long time, and he's still here with the Warriors. So, you know, he can be able to take punishment like that and come back out, and, you know, he'll be chill until he eventually does something like that again. That's just Draymond Green. That's just how I feel about the whole situation. It's like, both guys are wrong, okay? Both guys are wrong. You, When you're Sabonis, right, saying, like, oh, I fell down. I was trying to protect myself. I've never seen somebody try to protect themselves by grabbing another guy's leg, unless he was getting attacked, which, by the way, in that moment, Draymond was not attacking uh, Sabonis. He was he just happened to be standing right next to him. And, yeah, it's wrong for Draymond Green to stomp on a guy. You can't do that. Being a, being a veteran of the NBA, especially a veteran who's won four champions, you know better than that. And it feels like Draymond should know better than that, but, like, can, can we be real here? It's Draymond Green. He, he's kind of just going to do what he wants. So that's just how I feel about it. I think both guys are in the wrong. A lot of, lot of, but prior, other than that, a lot of um, award winners. Excuse me, guys. Had to drink some water. Uh, but a lot of the um, uh, NBA award winners were announced over the past week. First, announced was the Grizzlies Jaron Jackson Jr. winning defensive player of the year very much deserved on uh part of Triple J uh he was third in NBA third in defensive rating per NBA.com and he also led the NBA in three blocks per game he's only 23 right now and with his elite defensibility or, or de defensive ability and also his offensive versatility the sky's the limit for a guy like this and he and he uh, in this series between the Grizz and the Lakers he's going to be a very big component for them and I'm very excited for his future. He's a very good player. Love to watch him. And so congratulations to Jaron Jackson Jr. Uh, two Kings ended up winning award. De'Aaron Fox became the first ever clutch player of the year, which from Fox's standpoint was very well deserved. Fox was a huge reason for the Kings rise. And he also led the NBA in clutch points. And it's just like when you watch De'Aaron Fox in crunch time, or any time for that matter, he's just so good at getting to the basket and scoring. He's just such an incredibly volume scorer, and he can come he can come up clutch in the paint, which he has before. He can come up clutch from mid range, he has before. He had he could come um he could come up clutch from three point range. He's done that before. He's just such a talented scorer, and he has the ability to just you know willfully score. And they and the Kings they're so lucky to have a guy like that to give to put the ball in his hands and say you do what you do best and. Fox has the confidence to do all of that. And, you know, congratulations to Aaron Fox. The other the other Sacramento King that won an NBA award was head coach Mike Brown. This was actually Mike Brown's second ever 
um, Coach of the Year award. He ended up winning it way back in 2009, maybe, when uh, he led the Cavs to like 66 wins. Um, this is actually the first time in history that there's been a unanimous Coach of the Year. And just like the other two, um, Mike Brown very much deserved this award. He took a middling franchise in Sacramento Kings on the verge of being sold, uh, uh, being moved out of Sacramento, turned them into a, a, in my opinion, they turned them into a possible finals contender in his very first year. And, I, and that doesn't mean like, oh, I think they're going to the finals. That just that just is me saying like, I feel like they're good enough to get to near the NBA finals. And I feel like they're good enough to possibly get to the NBA Finals. Am I saying they're going to the Finals? No, but they could definitely get there. They, they could get close to there, you know. And this past season, he commanded the highest scoring offense of the NBA. They were first in points per game and offensive rating. And pre, and preseason predictions uh, had their over-under wins at 34.5. They didn't even have them in the playoffs. And he led them to the play playoffs. Not just into the playoffs, as the third seed in the playoffs so congratulations to mike brown very much well deserved certainly well deserved for being a unanimous coach of the year because while um mark diagonal and joel mazula did fantastic jobs in their own right you know mike brown just you know what he did this season for the sacramento kings is was just incredible and where he's got them right now as a perennial finals contender he most certainly deserved that unanimous award and finally, the other um, NBA award recipient this past week was Malcolm Brogdon of the Boston Celtics. He ended up, excuse me, he ended up winning Sixth Man of the Year, and this is actually his second award, I believe, um, to receive. Back when he was a rookie with the Milwaukee Bucks, he ended up winning Rookie of the Year. So congratulations to Malcolm Brogdon. He had a fantastic season. Um, he's actually the third Celtic in history to win a Sixth Man of the Year award. Uh, I know the other I know the other one was John Havlicek. I can't remember who the other one is, so I apologize on my part. But to Jaron Jackson Jr., to De'Aaron Fox, to Mike Brown, to uh, to Malcolm Brogdon, congratulations on fantastic seasons. Those those awards were very much deserved for all those guys. Now, getting into the um, Getting into the playoff action first, we're going to start off with the Los Angeles Lakers and the Memphis Grizzlies. This is a very, very good game for the Grizzlies. Um, they got a 103-93 key win in Game 2 without John Morant over the Los Angeles Lakers when they needed it most. Xavier Tillman came up big with a double-double. He had 22 points, 13 boards. Rui Hashimura for the Lakers had another good game, but... What really hurt the um, Los Angeles Lakers in this game was their just lack of offense, and um, Memphis just came out much better defensively than they did. Uh, although L.A. did play pretty good defensively, they just um, got outplayed defensively themselves. Um, that kind of didn't make sense, but whatever. Um, Anthony Davis really struggled. D'Angelo Russell had a bad game. Um, it, it was and it was impressive from the Grizzlies despite a lot of their players such as Dylan Brooks and Jaron Jackson, Tyus Jones, Desmond Bain, they all didn't really have good shooting games, but they all played that whole team played incredibly well defensively including Dylan Brooks and I'll get to Dylan Brooks, okay? I'll get to him. I, I know you guys are thinking a little bit about him, you know because of all the stuff he's saying, but you know, 
but before all of that, you do have to commend the Grizzlies, all of them, including Dylan Brooks, for playing fantastic defense and picking up huge win without their best player to tie the series heading back to L.A., giving them a ton of momentum. And... To, and with the whole uh, Dylan Brooks thing, like if he didn't if he didn't know what he was saying, Dylan Brooks was basically talking a whole bunch of trash to LeBron James in the post uh, in the in the post game like interviews when he was in the locker room, all that. He said stuff like, "Oh, he's old," or "I wish I would, I wish I could have guarded him when he was, you know, back in Miami or Cleveland." Uh, he's just not the same player he once was. All that stuff, like to be honest with you. I don't really have an opinion. I don't really care. You know, he can do what he wants. He can say what he wants. But, you know, he can, even though he can say what he wants, he's going to have to back it up. He's going to have to back it up. And although, yeah, he plays really bad offensively, like he's not he's not that good of an offensive player, his defense is great. His de- he's a great defensive player, so i got to show him respect there. But, you know, like you got people saying on social media like oh LeBron's going to go for 50 game 3 and stuff like that I'm really interested to see how Dylan Brooks um, how Dylan Brooks fares against LeBron like is he going to back up this talk because after game 2 or after game 1 when the Grizzlies had lost he, he didn't say a word but after this game like oh he was saying everything though keep in mind that the media was showing more of what Dylan Brooks was saying after the Grizzlies won than what he said after the Grizzlies lost. Just keep that in mind, okay? Because this type of stuff with this type of player like Dylan Brooks is, they're meant, media outlets are trying to post this to get you to react, okay? So don't react too crazy because that's the point of these clips. They're trying to get you to react. And, you know, it's whatever. Dylan Brooks can say what he wants. He, I, I just care if he backs it up, right? I only care if Dylan Brooks backs up his talk because it's one thing to talk the talk. It's another thing to walk the walk. And walking up LeBron James is not a walk. It is very much an uphill battle. And what? And it, it's a very interesting tactic if you really think about it because, you know, I'm not sure what Dylan Brooks is trying to do. Maybe he's trying to get into LeBron's head, like, to try and, like, force him to play hero ball and just try and score on him a bunch of times because – what makes LeBron so good and what makes LeBron so pivotal in these playoffs is his ability to get other players involved. And that's probably what Dylan Brooks is trying to do. He's trying to distract LeBron to focus on him. So LeBron gets more involved, but his teammates are out of the equation, which gives the Grizzlies a better chance. Something like that. You know, I, I, I find it an interesting tactic. Do I find it entertaining? Kind of, to be honest with you. Dylan Brooks has, you know, he's made tons of waves this year for being, you know, like just a guy who talks, doesn't really back it up. But this upcoming game three between the Grizzlies and the Lakers, this is his chance to back it up. This is his chance. And if he backs it up, and if he backs it up and, you know, the Grizzlies win, what are they going to say? He backed up the talk. And, you know, it'll be fun. It'll be a fun game three for sure. It'll be very fun. Um, In... In the next game uh, between the Miami Heat and the Milwaukee Bucks, the Milwaukee Bucks dominated the Miami Heat without Giannis Antetokounmpo. Um, <clears throat> they it was just it was just a thrashing from the beginning. They shot fifty one percent from three. Pat Connaughton and Joe Ingles were huge off the bench for the Bucks. Brooke Lopez and Drew Holiday each had good performances themselves. 
and it was just it was just a thrashing from the first quarter to the basically the third quarter it was bad and this really puts into it like you know this really puts it in perspective like maybe this could be it for Miami you you, you never know because the game one win in itself was was very very bad as it was however it feels like the milwaukee bucks have went back and they learned from their mistakes <clears throat> excuse me I, I i apologize i gotta stop clearing my throat in the mic i apologize uh sorry dad <laughs> but anyways um it was very very great to see you know from if you're a bucks fan it was very it was probably great to see that the bucks were able to go back and um watch the film, come back with a better game plan, and that game plan was just to, to just get open threes. And they got open three after open three, and even on, like, contested threes, they still made those. They shot 51%, as I said. It was an absolute dominant performance. It's going to be a very... It's going to be very pivotal two-game stretch in games three and four for the Milwaukee Bucks if they wish to advance to the Eastern Conference semifinals without their star player. Finally... Uh, the final game in this stretch, which I believe was Wednesday, but correct me if I'm wrong if it's not. I apologize if it is. I believe it was Wednesday. But in the final game of that uh, Wednesday slate, Anthony Edwards and Jamal Murray went to absolute war with each other. Jamal Murray scored 40. Anthony Edwards had 41. However, the Nuggets got the edge, 122-113. to 113. They take a 2-0 lead in that series. Once again, the story with this... Uh, with this game as it was in the first game that I talked about was that the Nuggets just dominated the paint they just did and Cat and Rudy Gobert have just they're really letting this down team down defensively they're getting eaten alive in the paint by Aaron Gordon Michael Porter Jr. and Nikola Jokic and even even the guards you know like Jamal Murray going to the basket and scoring there on a layup or whatever like they are just getting eaten alive in the paint which doesn't make sense because the reason that they brought in Rudy Gobert was to protect the paint, which, you know, backs up the argument that the Rudy Gobert trade was a dumb one. Because think about it. Think if they kept Rudy Gobert right now, or think if Rudy Gobert wasn't on the Timberwolves and they had an elite rim protector like Walker Kessler. Do you, like, think about it. Do you really think that this, could this be a different story? Could be. It could also be uh, it could also be something else. You never know. But this game, th these two games that the Timberwolves have played against the Nuggets are just proving people's point that the Rudy Gobert trade is one of the worst in NBA history because it doesn't mean anything. Like you bring in Rudy Gobert to better protect the paint, yet you're still getting dominated in the paint. Um, so what's the point, you know? Moving on to yesterday's action, lot, lot, a lot of games going on, a lot of good games. Uh, Sixers ended up going 3-0 on the on the Nets after a chippy game three. Uh, with a, after uh, excuse me, they won 102-97. I'm all over the place right now. Sorry guys. Uh, Nick Claxton was ejected after uh, mocking MB twice in that game, which to be honest with you, you know, mental lapse by uh, Nick Claxton. So that's bad on his part. James Harden got ejected for a flagrant two. Um, he had, well, it looked to me like he would had inadvertently hit Royce O'Neal in the groin, and then they called it a flagrant two, and Harden was ejected. Uh, Joel Embiid also had a flagrant one called on him after uh, Nick Claxton stepped over him. He kicked uh, 
Nick Embiid kicked Nick Claxton in the groin area. It was a very, very chippy game. Uh, very back and forth, though, nonetheless. But Tyrese Maxey's huge performance. He had 25 points. He was 5 of 8 from 3. That led the Sixers to the victory. Uh, also with Tobias Harris is 15. He had also had a really good game. Now the Sixers are in a very comfortable position. Up 3-0, going into game 4 with the foot on the net's throat. And we'll see what goes down in game 4. <clears throat> oh, God, I did it again. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, the other West Coast game, or the one of two West Coast games, I should say. Uh, the Kings of the Warriors in Game 3, a very, very big game for the Warriors. And Steph Curry caught fire. Uh, Curry had 36 in that game, six threes to go with it. The Warriors stayed alive versus the Kings with a 114-97 win. The Kings bench, it really, really struggled. Like, it really did. That Kings bench, nobody in nobody from that bench had above five points in that game. And not, not Malik Monk. Uh, he only had like three, maybe four. Trey Lyles didn't even score a point. He missed all six of his field goals. The, their bench, the bench really let down the Kings. And that is something that cannot happen for the Sacramento Kings. Because while DeMontis Sabonis and De'Aaron Fox are huge for that team, probably their biggest component is their bench. Because their bench is deep. They got a lot of guys there that can play really well. Like, again, Malik Monk and Trey Lyles, among other guys. When they're not playing well, they're not able to click and they're not and they can't win. And this was the reason this was one of the reasons that why the Warriors were able to win and stay alive in the playoffs. Uh Jordan Poole did struggle in this game, which I've been noticing that he's like really struggled in these past few games. Who didn't struggle though was uh Warriors center Kavon Looney. Despite having four points in that game, Kavon Looney grabbed twenty rebounds. Nine of those were offensive rebounds, and he also had nine assists in that game. So shout out to Gavon Looney for that performance. Very, very impressive, and the Warriors are still alive in this series. There's going to be a pivotal game four, and if the Warriors are able to tie it um, at 2-2, they're going to have a lot of momentum going into going back to Sacramento for game five. The final game from last night's Thursday slate, Devin Booker scored 45, which I believe passes Charles Barkley for the most 40-point 40 40 point playoff performances in Suns history, or Suns playoff history. So shout-out to Devin Booker. Incredible performance by him. Um, he would end up leading the Suns to a pivotal Game 3 win against the hobbled Los Angeles Clippers, 129-124. Chris Paul did struggle in this game, though, again, he's not—he's really taken a backseat to being the second guy on that team. It's almost like he's taken a step back to being the fourth guy behind DeAndre Ayton. But despite that, you know, he did what he had to do, and Devin Booker with his 45 and KD had 28, picked him up with great offensive performances. Norman Powell, I mentioned in game one that I would like to see Norman Powell get more offensively involved, and this is what I mean. I know, yes, he did score. Yes, uh, Kawhi was out. PG's been out for the series. But in his starting, in, in his start, Norman Powell had 42 points, seven three-pointers. And while I don't think he can do this off the bench, he can certainly get you a good 15 to 21, 22 points off the bench. He could be really good for that. Westbrook had a good game. You know, 30 points, eight boards, 12 assists. But despite all of this, but despite the Clippers playing a very good game in general, the reason that they didn't win this game was because Kawhi wasn't there. And if the Clippers want to win, then Kawhi is going to have to play game four. 
That if they because if Kawhi doesn't play Game Four, the Suns are going to have a huge offensive advantage over the Clippers, and they're and they could definitely take a three-one series, three-one series lead going back to Phoenix. And there was something very interesting I saw that Stephen A. Smith said about Kawhi Leonard, which people might be mad about, but if you really if like again. This like yes, certain people in the media say things to like get you to react, as I've said. However, if you listen to Stephen A. Smith real quick about what he had to say about Kawhi Leonard, you'd think like, huh, he's kind of got a point. Because what he said about Kawhi Leonard was he said that Kawhi is one of the worst superstars to have in the NBA. Not for his skill, but for the fact that you are unable to rely on him. Which, if you think about it, is kind of true. The, the Clippers for the past however many years have struggled to rely on um, Kawhi Leonard being there for them. And it's really, really hurt them in many, many ways. Uh, so while it does look bad for uh, Stephen A. Smith to say something like this, like, yes, we know uh, Kawhi Leonard's ability. We know his skill. It's unquestionable. However, he's just saying, like, can you rely on him? You really can't because if, you know, if Kawhi had played that game two, the Clippers would probably lead the series and they'd have huge momentum going into game four. Now with Kawhi looking doubtful for game four, possibly doubtful, I'm not sure on his status, but with Kawhi, if Kawhi doesn't play in game four, Suns could have a huge moment, have a huge surge of momentum going into game four, win that game and have so much momentum going back at home into Phoenix to close out to possibly close out the series. That's just how I see it. And that wraps up basketball. Moving into football, um, not really much went on, uh, though there were a few. <clears throat> I did it again. Gosh, I'm so bad at not clearing my throat into into the mic. I need to stop that. Anyways, uh, with football, uh, first off, the um, Demar Hamlin was cleared for football activities for the first time since his collapse. Um, Demar, he's been cleared by multiple doctors, including three heart specialists, to participate in football activities. Head coach Sean McDermott uh, recently emphasized the importance of his mental health as he, you know, physically recovers. He's uh, coach McDermott said, "quote." He's moving forward one step at a time. He's been cleared from a physical standpoint and will provide all the mental help we can from a mind, body, and spirit standpoint, end quote. From that, man, like, if you think about where this guy was back in January, nearly died on the field, like, man, like how could you not feel for this guy? And how could you not feel for this guy? Like, from, go, from, near, from nearly, like, losing your life playing the sport you love to not even like five months later and you're back on the field that if that isn't uh if that isn't evidence that some type of god i don't care if you believe in god or allah or whoever whomever you believe in it doesn't matter it this definitely shows that there's some type of higher power working because that is such superhuman that's not only big on like the you know like universal a universal aspect for a guy to collapse on um, a football field, nearly die, and then not even five months later come back to be clear for football activities. But, like, we got to give a shout-out to the medical personnel that helped save his life and helped bring him back to this point in his life. Because, you know, 
although at the time we weren't thinking about it, we were mainly worrying about hit Demar Hamlin's um, status, like like if he was gonna be okay, like much less play football again. Like like we weren't really thinking about him playing football. Now like this dude could play football this very coming season. Like that's incredible and just incredible incredible story. Uh, congratulations to Demar Hamlin. We're happy to have you back, man. Just you know, great stand up guy. Um, love to see it. And just, just shout out to him. Uh, a pretty interesting transaction occurred right now, or this past week. Uh, Pittsburgh Steelers traded for Rams wide receiver Allen Robinson. Um, teams, both teams swapped seventh round picks. Uh, in this upcoming draft so that Steelers could acquire Anthony, or, or not Anthony, but Allen Robinson. I think it's a very solid pickup for Pittsburgh. It brings in a veteran presence for the receivers uh, like George Pickens. Uh, gives him a chance to be utilized more. He really wasn't utilized well uh, and didn't really make much of an impact for Los Angeles in his first season. Uh, though that whole season was pretty much a mess from the start for the Rams. But... You know, nonetheless, uh, very, I, I, I don't like it as a Browns fan, but I think it's from a football fan standpoint, it's solid, and it could definitely make a difference for uh, the Steelers, you know, if they use him more. And even if they don't use him a lot, it could definitely help having a veteran presence for a young guy like George Pickens to learn from him. Finally, the last, uh, foot, the last football headline, I told you guys... Um, I told you guys it'd be short. Uh, five and this came out today. Five NFL players were suspended for violating the NFL's gambling policy. Detroit wide receiver uh, Quintez Cephas, Detroit safety C.J. Moore, and Washington defensive end Shaka Tony were all suspended indefinitely, while Detroit wide receivers Jamison Williams and Stanley Berryhill were both suspended for six games. Um, very, very interesting here. And it does really suck for James Williams considering the path that he was on um, after coming back from injury. For those confused about this, uh, these players did not bet on anything NFL-related, uh, specifically Williams and Barry Hill. They didn't bet on anything NFL-related, but it was reported that mobile betting occurred at the Lions facility, which betting on anything at uh, team facilities is is against league rules so you know they're gonna have to suspend them uh i'm assuming that cephas moore and tony those guys um those guys probably maybe could have bet on nfl games if they were suspended indefinitely but their their indefinite suspensions make me feel like they did something worse to break their pol the nfl's policy while jameson williams and stanley berryhill probably did something uh, a little less worse, but they were like, you know, you still broke league rules, so we're going to have to punish you, which happens, and it, it probably won't be much for them. Uh, we'll like to see uh, Jameis Williams back soon after the six-game suspension, but this is just kind of stuff that, like, you got to be aware of. You got to be aware of, like, what the rules are, and you're not letting your team down. And it's funny because uh, last month, uh, several Lions staff members in like different departments in the organization were all suspended for violating the gambling policy. But if they weren't and if they weren't suspended, they were let go. I heard. But <clears throat> yeah, really weird stuff going on in Detroit, man. Like really weird stuff. Um, but that's the that's basically the grand scheme of it in the NFL right now. 
Uh, it's a big week next week for the NFL with the draft coming up. And uh, I will bring this up again later on, but I'm going to be making a my own mock draft for next week's episode on Monday. And then Friday, I'm going to be recording a um, episode then, just recapping the first round, all that stuff. But I'll get to that uh, at the end. I'll basically talk about it a little bit there uh, so we can continue talking about um, what's going on outside. What else is going on in sports, you know? Moving on to hockey as the playoffs heat up. Uh, Hurricanes took a, take a 2-0 lead in the series. Uh, they halted the Islanders' comeback in a 4-3 overtime win. Center Paul Stastny got the scoring started with the first period goal. And Stefan Stephon Nason uh, added another in the second to make it 2-0 Canes in the second period. However, uh, going into the third, goals by Kyle Paul Almieri and Matthew Barzal tied the game 2-2. Uh, Islanders took a 3-2 lead in the third period with a Brock Nelson goal before Jacob Slavin tied the game to make it 3-3. They would go into overtime where Jordan Stahl hit Jesper Foss with a cross-ice pass as fast or Foss slapped the puck into the net for a 4-3 Canes win. Uh, Canes are up 2-0 going into uh, the Islanders' home ice. Very, very fun game. And this, and this I, I mean, honestly, this is kind of how I expected it to go. I just feel like you know, even though the Islanders had a good offensive performance and they nearly pulled that game out, um, I just feel like the Carolina offense is better equipped to outscore uh, the Islanders in this situation. Moving on, uh, this one hurt my heart. Four goal third period and turnovers powered the Florida Panthers past the Boston Bruins. They ended up tying the series at one apiece. The scoring started in a back and forth in the second. Sam Bennett scored to make it 1-0 Panthers. Marchand, Brad Marchand responded to tie the game. Eric Stahl uh, responded by making it 2-1 Panthers with a goal, while Tyler Bertuzzi tied the game going into the third. Then the Panthers ended up exploit. Then they just exploded in the third period. They scored four goals, including two by star defenseman Brandon Montour, and they took a seventh and they took a 6-3 win back to home ice. Uh, for as a Bruins fan, like just a bad performance. It was just bad. Um, and mass amounts of penalties and turnovers that killed them. And it was probably one of their worst performances all season. Um, I'm just hopeful that they can come back uh, with a better game plan and better uh, performance in Game 3 because, to be honest with you, that Game 2 was a, it was embarrassing to watch. It really was. They The Panthers, you know, this is and this is the... This is the magic of playoff hockey that I'm just like trying to get to you guys. It's like anything can happen. You know, Boston can look like a dominant team all season, but then uh, the Panthers can come out and absolutely explode offensively in the third period and take a 1-1 series tie back to home ice where they could possibly take a serious lead. Like, this is what hockey playoffs are all about. Anything can happen. Nobody's safe. Moving on back to the west, uh, the Western Conference. Dallas responded uh, after the Wild won in OT in Game One with a seven to three win um, behind Rupe Hintz's hat trick. Dallas went into the second period with a two one lead, uh, following goals from Rupe Hintz and Tyler Sagan, uh, and Oscar Svan Oscar having having the lead for the Wild, so two one. Going into the second period. Uh, the Stars added two more to make it 1-4, just five minutes in the second with a Jamie Benn goal and then Evgeny Dadanov goals. 
The Wild responded with goals by Marcus Johansson and Frederick Gaudreau. Goals to make it 4-3 with about 8 minutes to go. Then the Stars fired back with 3 consecutive goals. Goals. One, another by Dadanov, another goal by Hintz, and then Hintz added another goal to secure the hat trick and a 7-3 Stars victory. This series between the Stars and the Wild is tied heading back into Minnesota. Very fun game and like incredible performance by Rupe Hintz. This series has been an offensive this explosion. It's been very entertaining. Probably one of the most underrated series so far in the NHL playoffs. And finally, or, or this isn't the last Western Conference game, but staying in the Western Conference, the Edmonton Oilers rebounded and defeated the Los Angeles Kings 4-2 after the Kings came back to take Game 1. Oilers came out hot in the first. They took a 2-0 lead behind goals from Derek Ryan and Leon Dreisaitl. Kings rebounded in the second to tie the game 2-2 with the help of Philip Deneau and Gabriel Villardi. Early in the third, Clean Costine scored on the unassisted goal to give the Oilers a 3-2 lead, and Edmonton would put it away after Evander Kane hit an empty net goal to secure the 4-2 victory. 1-1 series uh, going back to LA for Game 3. Very good game for the Oilers, and this was a perfect way for them to respond. However, I'm getting very worried about Connor McDavid because he's almost been a non-factor in... Um, game, he's been a non-factor in games one and two, and the Kings have done a very good job to limit his production. However, you know the Oilers got guys that are able to make up for him, make up for his performance. They're all meant to make up for the performance. You know, is either you know if McDavid's having a bad game, then you got Leon Draisaitl and RNH. Vice versa, Draisaitl has a bad game, you got McDavid and RNH. But I do think it's very alarming that McDavid has been held. Um, he has been held very uh, almost non-existent on the ice so far in this series. Maybe he picks it up uh, on the road, but we'll see what happens. Uh, last night, uh, Maple Leafs rebounded with a Game 1 loss with a 7-2 thrashing of Tampa Bay. That also hurt my heart because as a Bruins fan, I don't like the Maple Leafs, but got to give props where props are due. Toronto took a 3-0 lead after the first period from um, goals by Mitch Marner, John Tavares, and William Nylander. Tampa cut into the lead with an Ian Cole goal, but the Leafs scored three more in the second period with another Tavares goal, another Marner goal, and a goal by Zach Aston Reese. Corey Perry scored the second Lightning goal to make it 6-2. Then Tavares cashed in on a Toronto power play to notch the hat trick and a 7-3 win. Additionally, defenseman Morgan Riley had four assists. A very, very good performance and a great way for the Maple Leafs to rebound after they got absolutely dominated in Game 1. Uh, this is definitely looking to be a very exciting series between the two teams. Uh, a much better performance um, from Ilya Samsonov, the Toronto goalie, than what happened last game. This He's going to be super key in the series for the Maple Leafs. Because, as I said when I talked about the Maple Leafs before, is that they've never really had strong goaltending to back up their offensive star power. Now they do. And that's performances like that show why it's so important to have a good goalie in the NHL playoffs. Um, and when they're on, the whole team is clicking. So I, so he, Ilya Samsonov is going to be a huge X factor for the rest of the series. And if he's able to play like he did in Game 2, the Maple Leafs have a huge advantage over the, over the defending Eastern Conference champions. Uh, staying in the Eastern Conference, which is the final Eastern Conference game in the past two days that I was talking about, the Rangers overcame an early deficit to take a 2-0 lead over the Devils. 
Eric Halla gave the Devils a 1-0 lead after the first. Then New York responded when Vladimir Tank Tarasenko tied the game before Chris Kreider scored two consecutive power play goals to make it 3-1 after the second period. The Rangers then added two more in the third with goals by Patrick Kane and Capo Kako. And the Rangers, their, their experience is really showing so far. It really is. I said that the key in this series is going to be the experience factor between both teams. Most of the Devils have never really um, been in the playoffs before, and while they had a great regular season, this is the first time. Um, this is the first time most of them are experiencing the monster that is playoff hockey. And most of these guys uh, for the Rangers have been in playoff hockey many times before. Vladimir Tarasenko's won a Stanley Cup with the St. Louis Blues. I believe it was the Blues. I think. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Patrick Kane, you know, he won three. Uh, he won three Stanley Cups with the Chicago Blackhawks. They've, they know how to win. They know how to adjust to playoff hockey, and the Rangers are exploiting that part of the game for the Devils. And they look to be shaping up really well and to be in very good shape so far, uh, going back to home ice. Uh, moving to the Western Conference, the Colorado Avalanche edged the Seattle Kraken 3-2 to tie the series at one game apiece. Seattle came out firing in the first period. They took a 2-0 lead after the first on goals by Justin Schultz and Brandon Tenev. However, Colorado would go on to tie it in the second period, first with a goal by Arturi Lekonen and then Valerie Nichushkin. They would go to the third period tied at 2-2. It's around seven minutes ago, Devin Taves scored on an assist by Lekkonen to give the Avs a go-ahead goal. The Avs would then hang on for a 3-2 victory. Very big. Um, I did not expect the Seattle Kraken to win game one. That was a total shock to me. They really shut me up, to be honest. And it very much looked like the Seattle Kraken were on their way to winning, the, uh, to winning a second game, taking a 2-0 lead back to home ice. Uh, against the Colorado Avalanche, the defending Stanley Cup champions. However, the Avalanche, they're defending Stanley Cup champions for a reason. And they showed their heart. Uh, they kept pull, they pulled through in the second period, tied, this, tied the game, eventually took the lead on the Devin Taves goal, and they edged this series going back to Seattle. I, I'm very excited to watch that game, to be honest with you. It's going to be the first game, uh, the first playoff hockey game in Seattle, probably ever. Maybe ever. I don't know. But I'm very excited to see the atmosphere there. I feel like it's going to be rocking. And that's going to be a very good game to watch. And it's been a good series so far between the Kraken and Avalanche. And finally, the final game of the past two days in the NHL playoffs. Uh, Las Vegas rebounded. Or rather, they're not even Las Vegas. They're just Vegas. But regardless, the Golden Knights rebounded in Game 2 with a 5-2 win over the Jets. Winnipeg scored about halfway through the first period on a power play goal by Adam Lowry. They led 1-0 after the first. Vegas tied it with a William Carlson goal. Then Jack Eichel would give the Knights the lead to one. I know anybody that's from St. Bonaventure or just from Western New York in general hates that name. Uh, with about five minutes, though, Kevin Stenlins tied the game at two going into the third. Then Chandler Stevenson gave Vegas a 3-2 lead in the third before Mark Stone steal the game with two goals in the span of five minutes. And Vegas would go on to tie the series and take and with a 5-2 win. While it was very while it was very shocking to me that Winnipeg took that game because as I said, Winnipeg their offense is not that good. It really isn't. And for them to go out against the Vegas Golden Knights and score five to take a one oh series lead prior to game two is really impressive. 
and but you know th- th- it did it didn't really stand. Uh, Vegas was able to shore up their goaltending issues from game one. They were able to perform better offensively, and they were able to tie the series, go to Winnipeg, tying the series. And it's going to be a very interesting series, although I think Vegas kind of has the edge. However, as I said, Connor Hellebuck is the X-Factor, the Winnipeg Jets goalie. He's the X-Factor in this series. If he's able to limit um, Vegas' offense, then he's going to give his offense uh, a much more chance to score goals. And if they score, if they play like they did in Game 1 and Connor Hellebuck continues to play, we could see a really big upset of, with the Jets over the Knights. And finally, or before we get to our big section, a lot of big news going around in the UFC right now. A bunch of new fights were being set for future UFC events. Uh, If you didn't catch recently, UFC 288's co-main between lightweights Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush were, uh, or it was um, canceled due to Oliveira suffering an injury. However, Dana White has substituted a replacement uh, the UFC 288 co-main, uh, the main event of that um, of that event on May 6th will be the Bantamweight Championship bout between Aljamain Sterling, the champ, and Henry, the messenger, Cejudo. Uh, but the co-main is going to be a very good one, too. It's going to be a five-round welterweight bout between ranked uh, welterweight contenders um, Bilal Muhammad and Gilbert Burns. This is going to be a very entertaining one. It's going to put into the picture, it's going to be very big for the welterweight division, you know. Um, If Gilbert Burns were to win, you know, this dude would have won three fights in five months. And whoever wins this fight, it it should definitely be calling for a title shot right now, you know. Um, As I said, Gilbert Burns, if he were to win this fight against Bilal Muhammad, he would have won three fights in five months. Um, he on re- January he fought Neil Magny, and uh, recently in April in Miami he beat Jorge Masvidal, and you know he's going now going into a fight against a much better opponent in Bilal Muhammad. Bilal right now is on a eight fight win or eight fight unbeaten streak as it stands. Um, he's been very very impressive, and whoever wins this fight should def is definitely going to be calling for a title shot, and if not, they're going to be calling for Colby Covington. Considering that Colby's been kind of just lurking in the shadows, waiting for his opportunity. He's probably going to get his opportunity against Leon Edwards, but probably not for a while. Uh, by the way, I don't know if I said this before, but if you want Leon Edwards to get stripped of his title because he's not going to defend it at July, or, or in July, and he's going to defend it October, if you want his title stripped because of that, just shut up. Like, this dude, <clears throat> this dude fought Kamar Usman in the span of what, like... August, August, September, October, November. He fought Kamal Usman twice in the span of eight months. Had to do a little quick math right there. But, like, if I did that, if I did, me personally, if I was with Leon Edwards, I'd want a bit of a break. All right? Like, fighting Kamal Usman's no joke. Beating him is another thing. Like, I, I, I would want, and plus, both of those fights have went to five rounds. You don't think bro's tired? And it's like, well, he's a, he, he's a fighter. He should be able to weather the storm or whatever. At least give the man a break. Like, <laughs> like this dude's life just got shifted it, by one by one head kick. And I'm talking about Leon Edwards. This His whole life got shifted by one head kick. And then he ended up beating the guy that, he, the guy that many predicted to beat him in the trilogy bout. 
and you're, and and now you got people calling for your title to be stripped because he wants a break. No pun intended, but give me a break. Like like say save it, man. That's just that's such that's such bull crap. Anyways, um, going back to Charles Oliveira and Benil Dariush, that fight has been moved to the co-main of UFC 289. It's smart to put off this fight as, you know, Charles recovers from injury and it makes the pre-290 card a lot more interesting. There wasn't really much, you know, interest in, there's not really much interest in this card outside of the Amanda Nunes and Juliana Pena um, trilogy bout, which to be honest with you, I'm not really excited about because um, if, you know, if Juliana Pena is able to pull out a victory, great for her, but I just don't see it really happening. Um, I think Amanda Nunes is just overall the big fight, the better fighter, and she's going to learn, and she's definitely learned from her mistakes after the first fight. She's going to come out firing, or not going to come out firing, but you know she's going to she's going to do what she's going to do to you know probably get the win against Juliana Pena. Pena, but hey, people said the same thing about the first fight, and Juliana pulled off the upset within like two rounds. So anything can happen in the UFC, but you know it was outside of that wasn't very interesting. Uh, it wasn't a very interesting card, but um, a fight between Charles Dubronx Oliveira and Benil Dariush, two lightweight contenders, is going to make this very interesting. Uh, lots of other, uh, lots of fight night um, main events were announced. June third fight night is going to be the main event. Will be a five round middleweight bout between ranked fighters Jack Hermanson and Brendan Allen. June seventeenth fight night it will be a five round middleweight bout between. Marvin Vittori and Jared Kinnanier, which will more likely be a middleweight title eliminator bout between two of the best middleweights in the world. June 24th fight night, uh, the main event there will be a five-round featherweight bout between former title challenger or interim title challenger Josh Emmett and undefeated Ilya Taporia. I like that fight, honestly, for Ilya Taporia because, you know, it, it's going to be his toughest test. Um, he's got a 13-0 record, as I've said. Well, undefeated record, but you get the point. Nine first-round finishes. He's finished four or five, four or five past fights, uh, including his last fight where he submitted form, uh, ranked Bryce Mitchell. I, I, this is going to be a very, very good fight. I'm really excited for this. And the July 1st fight night, there will be a five-round middleweight bout between rank, between number seven, Sean Strickland, and Abus Magomedov. There's also been some additions to UFC 290, the big event in Las Vegas this July, that very exciting. There's going to be a ranked middleweight title eliminator bout between number two Robert Whitaker and number six Drikas Duplessis. Uh, right now, obviously, we know how. If you're a UFC fan, you know how good Robert Whitaker is, former middleweight champion. Uh, and right now, uh, Duplessis is riding a seven-fight win streak. It's going to be a very, very good fight, and. You know, if Duplessis wins this fight, he certainly deserves the next shot at Israel Adesanya. <clears throat> I did it again. And as for Robert Whitaker, you know, if he wins this fight, it does make it a bit interesting. You know, there could be a trilogy fight, but it would probably. But this, if if Hollow or no, if Adesanya and Whitaker would have a trilogy fight, it kind of be similar to um, trilogy bouts like. Uh, Frankie Edgar and Gray Maynard or uh, Max Holloway and Alexander Volkanovsky where one guy just won all three fights but nonetheless would be interesting um, it's going to be definitely a good fight between these two uh, two other fights have been added uh, welterweight bout between Robbie Lawler former welterweight champion and Nico Price uh, and a ranked lightweight bout between number 10 Jalen Turner and number 11 Dan Hooker those three fights are all set for UFC 290 and hey 
UFC's really, really cooking right now. They're really cooking, and I'm very excited to see what these guys have got in store. It's very, very cool um, to see all these fights, and I feel like it's going to be a very, very good summer for the UFC. And finally, for the final section, uh, moving on to baseball, a lot, ha lot happened. Um, uh, there were a couple of big extensions. Uh, the Minnesota Twins extended right-handed pitcher Pablo Lopez on a four-year, $73.5 million extension. And the Reds agreed to a uh, extension, a six-year, $53 million extension, with their young, budding right-hander flamethrower Hunter Green. Uh, those both make sense. Pablo Lopez right now, he's one of the best pitchers in the uh, MLB. But this is kind of like a... This is mostly a common occurrence with a guy like Pablo Lopez. He's usually, he's usually um, like one of those guys like that comes out firing, um, playing really well, pitching very well in the first, in the first like month of the season that he kind of slows down. But nonetheless, Pablo Lopez has always been a solid pitcher, and it's very smart for the Reds to extend Hunter Green. He's their future star pitcher. And they also got the extension at a very good bargain at six years, $53 million. That's pretty good. And I have a whole big section right now, and I'm basically going to go over to you guys. My most impressed, the teams that have most impressed me so far versus teams that I'd like to see more of. Or not more of, but better of. Um, so starting off this list, I'm going to go into list my most impressive teams so far with the Atlanta Braves. Shout out to you, Reese. Uh, right now, the Braves hold a 14 and five record. Ronald Acuna Jr. is playing at an MVP level. He's hitting the hell out of baseballs. Matt Olson and Sean Murphy are slugging like crazy too. They got 10 home runs and 34 RBIs combined. Um, I mentioned that the I, or I, I don't know if I mentioned it, but like the loss of Dansby Swanson. Um, was very big for the Braves. However, Orlando Arcia has been a pleasant surprise. Prior to his injury, um, Orlando Arcia had a 900-plus OPS, and he's honestly been pretty good for them. Austin Riley's been playing good still. Um, the only two that have really disappointed me at this point for the offense are Michael Harris, second, who right now is injured. Um, he had an uh, OPS plus, or right now has an OPS plus of 47, which is terrible. And Marcelo Zuna right now is batting, good God, .083. Like, again, good God. And they're, they're both just really struggling bad right now. Um, I feel like Michael Harris will pick it up in some way, although I don't feel the same for Marcelo Zuna. Their pitching looks great so far, though. Um, Spencer Strider's been good. Bryce Elder's been a pretty pleasant surprise. Max Freed. Had a really good outing. Had a really good outing against the. I don't. I don't remember who it was. Maybe this is Padres, but correct me if I'm wrong on that. He had had a good outing recently, though, and the uh, Braves still have a really good bullpen. Very confident about the Braves. I feel like they're overall they have just the best roster in the MLB. They're built for a championship run, um, and I'm very confident for them in this season. I was think I was mulling over this. I didn't know whether to put one team in the AL East and I was like, you know what, screw it. I'd put four out of I'd put four out of five teams of the AL East in here. Just because the whole division isn't pressing right now. Tampa Bay, as we know, it had an incredible hot start to the year. They went thirteen to no to start the year. And they're still playing really well right now. They're sixteen and three. 
Josh Lowe is playing very well right now. One of the younger outfielders. He's slugging near 800. Uh, he's got OPS at 1156. Randy Arozarena, uh, he's got 18 RBIs right now. Wander Franco has returned well with 13 RBIs. Uh, Brandon Lau and Yandy Diaz right now have 11 home runs um, combined. Yandy has six. Brandon Lau has five. Uh, Christian Bethencourt's been a surprise right now. So far, he's batting 500, or he has OPS at around 900, and Bethencourt's never really been known for being a um, productive hitter, mainly a good defender, but Christian Bethencourt's been really good right now. Um, Taylor Wallace has been a great utility piece. You know, if somebody's hurt, they just plug him in there, and he's been really good. He had a really good performance against the Cincinnati Reds recently. And the pitching's still good. McClanahan's been great. The bullpen's been good. But what really worries me is Jeffrey Springs' Tommy John surgery. Losing Jeffrey Springs after a really, really, after two really big starts for Jeffrey was really big for them, and it really hurts them. However, the Rays are still playing at a good pace, and I feel like they'll be at. Um, I feel like they'll be good, and they'll be they'll be fine coming come around September and October. I think that the Rays will continue to play at this pace. I feel like they have the pitching depth to do so. They'll be okay. Moving on to uh, the second team in the AL East, Toronto's offensive stars so far have been carrying uh, the ship. Bo Bichette has an OPS over 900. Vlad Jr. playing great, but the star so far has been Matt Chapman. He's absolutely playing out of his mind. Batting near 400 with a 397 batting average, slugging at 6, 750, and OPS at 1.211. He's got 14 extra base hits with nine doubles, five home runs, 17 RBIs. He's so far he's been my player of the month in April. He's absolutely been lighting it up, and it, you know if he continues to play like this with the elite defense that Matt Chapman always brings, he's going to be a force, and he could probably you know he could be a dark horse. Um, MVP contender if he were to continue to play at this level. However, their pitching has really disappointed me. Their bullpen's been good, but their starting pitching's been bad. Alec Manoa hasn't really been that good. Kevin Gossman struggled. Chris Bassett hasn't been good, and um, Jose Barrios—they're just all been bad. Uh, the only one, the only starter that's really impressing me so far has been Yusei Kikuchi. Um, he's been much better this last year, although he's got like an ERA nearing five at around four-ish. He has, um, he's um, looked better on the mound because he's he's relying more on his fastball than his cutter, and his cutter last year was getting was just getting smashed out of the park. This year he's relying on a better fastball, and you know right now he's gone two and zero, and he's pitched pretty well. However, um, the Toronto Blue Jays bullpen has been fantastic. Jordan Romano's still a good great closer. Adam Simber, Zach Pop. Uh, Eric Swanson, Tim Meza, they've all been good, and their bullpen has been a really big surprise considering how bad Toronto's bullpen has been the past couple years. It's really what's been their Achilles heel so far. Uh, it's been one of their biggest strengths uh, to start the season. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles have also really impressed me. They've got a record of 11-7. and Adley Rutschman has rised to... Um, uh, insane levels. He's still playing great. Right now, he's got a 309 batting average with a 447 on base percentage, the 962 OPS. Jorge Mateo has been very shocking on the offensive side right now. Jorge's got a 1.2 war. 
um, in 18 games or however many games he's played. But regardless, he's batting 362 with a 638, 638 slugging percentage, the OPS over 1,000. Ryan Mountcastle kind of been a very up and down. Uh, he's like, you know, some games he's good, some games he's bad. And by some games he's good, I mean he had an incredible 9-RBI performance on April 11th versus the Oakland Athletics. Uh, Austin Hayes was is smashing the ball right now. He's got a near 1,000 OPS. Their pitching is okay. It can be better. And I would like to see Grayson Rodriguez get more major league experience. Right now, um, he's struggling a little bit. But I think with more major league experience, he's going to get better and better as time goes on. But I do want to mention this right now. I, be I truly believe that Felix Bautista should start to be recognized as one of the best, best closers in the majors. Right now, Felix Bautista has a 1.04 ERA in nine appearances with five saves and a strikeout per nine of 16.6. Baltimore also has pretty good uh, pen pieces like Brian Baker and Danny Colombe. You know, I feel like uh, the Orioles right now, they're good. Their, their offense is really coming together, and if they all click, then they can all be really good. I just would want to see them improve in their pitching department. Their starting pitching is kind of lackluster. I don't feel like most of their bullpen can hang with the rest of the league for too long. And if they improve in that area, then I think they could really make a push for the playoffs. And finally, rounding out the AL East is the good old New York Yankees. Right now, they have a record of 12-7, and and it's just been a really good collective offensive effort. Aaron Judge has, you know, he he's not at the pace that he was. And, yeah, he's got a lot of hype going around him, but he's living up to the hype. He's been very good hitting the ball well. Anthony Rizzo's still been good. DJ LeMahieu's had a good start. Freechie Cordero's been a pretty big surprise. Um, Glaber Torres and Anthony Volpe have been on-base machines. Right now, Glaber's got 15 walks to 11 Ks. And Volpe, he's not really hitting well. He's hitting below the Mendoza line. If you don't know uh, what the Mendoza line is, it's basically whether a batter is um, batting below or above 200 or .200, obviously. Um, while he's not um, been while he's not been hitting well, again hitting below the Mendoza line, he's got a solid 13 walks. And for a young 22 year old like him playing shortstop for the Yankees, to you know he's getting on base very much. And I feel like the more he sees. The more he sees major league pitchers, the more he's gonna get accustomed to it, and the and he he'll continue to rise from there on. Uh, and that's that rounds out the AL East. Like they've that whole um, divisions impressed me a lot. Even the Boston Red Sox right now. Um, my Boston Red Sox, their offense has been pretty good. Their pitching's been kind of a mess outside of Tanner Hawk, um, Garrett Whitlock, and Chris Sale. Although Chris Sale all didn't really start well either. I don't feel like they can um, – they're like 10 and 10 right now, but I did want to shot them out a little bit because, you know, it's Red Sox for life. Um, moving to the National League, the Milwaukee Brewers have been very impressive so far as well. They're 14 and 5. They definitely have the pieces to make a run of the Central Division. They have a really good offensive um, – they have really good offensive pieces such as Willie Adamas, Rowdy Telez. Christian Yelich, although Christian Yelich is not Christian Yelich as he was before, nor he ha nor has he been for a long time. But they do have um, two really solid rookies who I feel like could get better with time, Garrett Mitchell and Bryce Terang. Uh, Brian Anderson has also been pretty solid. But what's really been the key for the Milwaukee Brewers so far is their pitching. 
The starting pitching has just limitless talent. You got Corbin Burns, you got Freddy Peralta, Wade Miley, Eric Lauer, Brandon Woodruff. It's going to hurt to have him out for some time, but their starting pitching is definitely good enough to carry the load. But their bullpen has looked really good so far. And their bullpen is a huge reason for uh, the Brewers' 2.96 combined ERA, which is third in the MLB. I think that with the Cardinals kind of struggling right now in Chicago, you know, they're not really going to make much, if any, moves. Um, Pittsburgh will eventually fall off a cliff. I'll get to Pittsburgh in a minute. But I, I feel like Milwaukee has a, a good edge in this division. I think they could definitely continue this. Um, I, I feel like they could continue this momentum and win the NL Central. Next up, uh, second to last team in this section, the Texas Rangers with a record of 12-6 and six, have looked really good so far. Corey Seager was playing out of his mind prior to going down with an injury. He was batting 360 with a four, with around 470 on base percentage and an OPS over 1,000. He had nine walks to seven strikeouts, which is crazy in the small sample size that he had. Uh, Marcus Simeon, he's looked back to his old form. He's batting 293 with an 848 OPS, four home runs, 18 RBIs. Looks like old Marcus Simeon. Jonah Heim is take. He's really taking the starting catching role to a good level. He's batting 311. He's slashing a 311 with a 385 on base percentage, 556 slugging, and a 940 OPS with three home runs and 11 RBIs. Though Adolis Garcia has been very, he's been a very mixed bag. While he's had big moments and he has, you know, the extra base hits and the home runs and RBIs and all that. Overall, he's just not like batting well, and I like to see him, you know, become better, you know, improve better, become a more disciplined hitter. As for the Rangers pitching, they've been solid, and I'm really getting the feeling that Jacob Degrom is just about to take off. He had a, recently had a really good outing against the Kansas City Royals. Pitched four innings, a shutout ball with five strikeouts. He left that game with right wrist soreness. However, the Rangers have said that he's good, and I feel like. After um, the Philadelphia Phillies game where he got smacked around, I feel like he's really, really going to just take off from here on out. And we're going to really see some of Jacob DeGrom's old stuff that we saw back in New York. And finally, the last team uh, in this section, the Pittsburgh Pirates? Yeah, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Those Pittsburgh Pirates that have been garbage for so long, and I don't care if you're a Pirates fan or not, you got to agree with me. The Pirates have always been bad for a long time. However, right now, they've got off to a pretty impressive start at 13-7. and seven. And to be honest with you, I'm, I'm just being brutally honest. They're likely going to hit a cliff at some point. But so far, they've been good. <coughs> Carlos, Sotana, uh, Carlos Santana's been a very underrated pickup. He's batting 250 with a 423 slugging percentage at a 768 OPS. Which for, you know, a small pickup like Carlos Santana, that's pretty good. Uh, Andrew McCutcheon's been great in his return. He's batting 290 with a with a near 400 on base clip, uh, slugging 548. He had an OPS at 1,000 uh, not too long ago, but now it's at 943. Still pretty good. He's walked 11 times to striking out 11 times. Brian Reynolds, Jack Sawinski, Connor Joe have all been really good. Um, O'Neill Cruz was batting well too until his injury, and it sucks that he's going to be out for a long time. We'll get better soon, O'Neill. Love seeing you on the field. Um, Brian Hayes has not been good at the plate. However, he's doing what he's there for, and that's to play defense. He's got like a thousand fielding percentage right now, um, which is crazy for the amount of games that he's played. I feel like he's played in every game so far, 
And, you know, although he's struggling at the plate, he's doing what he's best at, and that's playing defense. The only thing that worries me is that they're pitching. You know, it's just not, not that bad. However, uh, Johan Oviedo has been a surprise in the rotation, and David Bednar so far has been lights out. So I, I don't feel like the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates are going to continue on this trend. I feel like um, they're going to hit a wall at some point. They're going to hit that cliff. But as for right now, they've been pretty good. And now we go into the final section for today. Which is teams that are really, really um, on, like, they're, they're really getting on my radar right now. Not for good, but for really struggling. First off, the yeah, Seattle Mariners last year, obviously they had that crazy run uh, where they went to the postseason for the first time in, what, 20 years. Um, they win the wild card round against the Blue Jays, end up getting swept first, the Astros, the World Series champion Astros. But a lot of hype. However, they. However, one of the things that has marked the Seattle Mariners in these past couple seasons has been their ability to capitalize in close games. Right now, they're 0-9 in games where opponents score 4-plus runs. So, something there is wrong. They cannot pull when games. They cannot pull through when games are close. Right now, their pitching is not very good in the clutch. Their offense can't come up with anything when they're down. They have a lot of pitching injuries and just poor plays just really hurt them right now. Uh, specifically, um, Robbie Ray and Andre Munoz right now, they're out with injuries. They're really struggling right now, and I think they'll be okay. Um, they'll, I think at some point they're going to, um, they're going to, if not mold back into the Mariners of old, they're at least going to get back in a spot where they can continue to, uh, well, not continue, but to at least be, you know, like competitive in those close games that they always seem to win in the past couple years. But their slow start has really shocked me. One of their, one, another team's slow start that has really shocked me right now has been the St. Louis Cardinals. Their starting pitching has just been bad. Like It's been really bad. Jordan Montgomery, Miles Michaelis, Jake Woodford, Steven Matz, they're just not good right now. Um, their offense has been pretty good right now. Nolan Gorman's playing very well along with you know pretty much everyone else. Uh, Wilson Contreras, Paul Goldschmidt, Tommy Edmond. Tommy Edmond had a uh, um, outstanding performance against the State, or the Arizona Diamondbacks recently, um, along with like guys like Nolan Arenado and Jordan Walker's got a lot of hype around him. However, you know if the Cardinals continue to have poor outings from their starting pitching, you know it, it, it's gonna it's it's gonna be a struggle for them to maintain any sort of consistency if their starters can't get it going. The defending champion Houston Astros have been very interesting right now. They're nine and ten. Their offense right now is thin outside of um, Kyle Tucker and Jordan Alvarez, where Jordan's not really batting um, or playing like he was back then, although Kyle Tucker's been great this season. You know, right now, Altuve's been hurt, and Mauricio Dubon has uh, filled in well. But other than that, Jeremy Pena, Alex Bregman, Jose Abreu, they're really they're struggling bad at the plate right now. It also feels like their pitching's being affected with the loss of Justin Verlander. Framber has pitched well. But he's taken two L's. Um, Luis Garcia struggled bad, but he did have a good performance recently. Um, though there is one player I do want to mention, and that is Hunter Brown. He's been very impressive so far. He's got a sub-2 ERA, and I think he's won all three of his starts. Uh, might be wrong on that, so you guys could um, correct me on that. I would appreciate it. 
But I really like his odds for winning Rookie of the Year. I've liked Hunter Brown for a while now. I think he's really going to make a name for himself in that Houston rotation. He's going to be very big for them. And I think that the Astros will be fine. I think that they just have the overall talent to continue to um, win the games that matter. And then they'll eventually go on a run at some point. And then, you know, they'll be up there to take the AL West and likely go on their mission to repeat as World Series champions. I'm not too worried about the Astros. However, this one team that is really worrying me right now is the San Diego Padres. Their offense has really stagnated. They're collect they have a collective OPS under 700, which is really worrying me. Xander Bogarts has been fantastic. Right now, he's batting 350 with five home runs. He's got a near 1,000 OPS at 993. Juan Soto right now, though, he is really, really struggling. He's, you know, doing Juan Soto things and continuing to get on base, but he's not batting well. He's batting under 200. And even Manny Machado, he's got an OPS below 600. The return of Fernando Tatis Jr., I believe, would help them. But Tatis went 0-5 in his uh, return um, last night against the Arizona Diamondbacks. So is it really going to help them? I, I, I mean, I think that Fernando Tatis Jr. will be fine. I think he'll adjust well. You know, it's a very big drop-off from AAA to, or a very big gap in talent between AAA and MLB. But I think at some point, <clears throat> I think at some point he's going to um like he's he's gonna catch fire and I think the and but while I think Fernando will be fine, will Manny be fine? Will Juan be fine? Um their starting rotation is just way all over the place. Like they're at the point right now where Seth Lugo is their best starter. Seth Lugo. I, I don't mean to I don't mean for Seth Lugo to catch straight like that, but like when you got you Darvish losing two or three starts Blake Snell losing three or four starts, and now pushing uh, Nick Martinez and Michael Walker as starters, who by the way have struggled. Um, they're, they're just their starting pitchings have been all over the place. The only bright spot for the Padres right now has been their bullpen. Josh Hader's been great in save opportunities. Stephen Wilson's been a really big surprise. He's been their best reliever overall so far. Brent Honeywell, Honeywell Jr.'s been good too, but there. But with how much. With how much offensive firepower the um, Padres have accumulated. And while Xander's played well, Juan Soto's not batting well. Yeah, he's still getting on base, but what does it matter if he's hitting like 160 or 170, something around there? What does it matter if Manny Machado has an OPS below 600? What ma What does it matter if Fernando Tatis Jr. goes over 5 in his return? It's not good. And while Xander, yeah, he's going to have to continue his play. Fernando, Soto, Machado, they're all going to have to pick up the slack if the Padres want any chance of competing at the um, at, in the playoffs or even in the NL West against the Dodgers. And their starting pitching needs to figure it out too because they've been a mess. Speaking of the Dodgers, I have them on the list list too, though, though honestly, I'm not too worried um, they actually almost just got a perfect game thrown against them, against the Chicago Cubs, as I'm talking about this. So, a bit interesting, but no nonetheless, I'm not too worried. They've been hitting pretty well, and the start of pitching's been good, I even without Walker Buehler being there. Um, their bullpen's been a mess, however. You know, Evan Phillips, Bruce Dogratterall, Yancy Almonte, Alex Vessia, they've either been subpar to just straight up bad. Um, so, they definitely gonna have, they're definitely going to have to improve in that department. However, their um, 
starting pitching, as I've said, has been fantastic. Dustin May's been great. Julio Rios has been great. Clayton Kershaw, looking like old Clayton Kershaw. He notched a, his 200th win in a 7th inning 9 9K shutout performance and a 5-0 win over the Mets recently. He looks great. Um, and as I said, their offense looked good. Um, Mookie Betts has returned. Well, I mean, their offense has looked good, other than today where they almost got a perfect game plan against them. Um, Mookie has returned, and uh, he's even playing. He even played his first game at shortstop against the Cubs, and had a double play. Had a great double play for a guy who has played shortstop once, which is wild. Uh, JD Martinez has been heating up. Max Muncy has been slugging the hell out of baseballs. <clears throat> I think he's leading the um, MLB in home runs. If not, he's close. Um, one guy that's really surprising me. So, f- oh, uh, before I get to that, Freddie Freeman also has been playing well. One guy that's really been impressive me so far, James Outman. Yeah, I think he's a real good dark horse for Rookie of the Year in the National League. Um, he's filling in greatly for the absence of Cody Bellinger. Right now, James has nine extra base hits with 15 RBIs. He's been smacking the baseball right now. Um, and other and you know their other really big big rookie Miguel Vargas has shown flashes of potential. He's not hitting well right now, but, you know, like Anthony Volpe, he has a good on-base percentage right now. Miguel Vargas is getting on base at a 388 clip. However, Miguel Rojas and David Peralta have just been bad, just straight-up bad. I think Miguel Rojas has a negative OPS+, plus, which you really have to try to get to be bad to get a negative OPS+. Plus. Not, to, not to disrespect them, though, but they, they've just both been really bad so far. And... Um, I, I, again, while they all, while the Chicago Cubs and Drew Smiley almost do a perfect game against the Los Angeles Dodgers, you know, I think they're okay. I think they'll be fine. I think that they've got the tools to be able to, um, to be able to continue and have success in the playoffs. I think they're okay. And the final team within this section of teams that are, um, really giving me question marks right now are the Philadelphia Phillies. Right now, they hold a record of 8-12. and 12. Their offense has been as advertised. Um, right now, Bryson Stott has been dominating from the leadoff position. He's hitting 360 with a 20-game hit streak to start the year. Alec Bohm's been well. Trey Turner's been pretty good. You know, not at his WBC level, which, you know, it, it, it's, it's, not, it's pretty hard to maintain that level of play. Um, but still, Trey's been good. Edmundo Sosa has been a surprise, and Brandon Marsh as well. Edmundo Sosa is batting 344 with a 625 slugging percentage and an OPS at 978. Brandon Marsh right now is hitting 356 with a 424 on base percentage, slugging 717 with 1136 OPS, 12 extra base hits, and 11 RBIs. He's been really impressive so far. Right now, it only feels like a matter of time before, you know, guys like JT Romuto, Nick Castellanos, and Kyle Schwarber heat up, and then, you know, Harper comes back, and Harper might play first base, so, you know, we'll see what happens there. I think Alec Bohm's been, he's been okay at first base. Um, Obviously, Alec Bohm's much known, more known for his hitting ability rather than his defensive ability. Um, While the Phillies' offense hasn't been good, or it's been all right, but not great. It's just been okay. What's really hurting the Phillies right now is their starting pitching. It's floundered. Aaron Nola right now has an ERA nearing six. Zach Wheeler has an ERA nearing five. Bailey Falters lost three of four starts. Their only viable starters so far have been Taiwan Walker, who's been pretty good, and Matt Strom, who, by the way, lost last night versus Colorado in a 5-0 loss. 
Um, and the only guys, the only pitchers that have really been impressive have been, has been their closer, Jose Alvarado, um, and a surprise bullpen piece in Andrew Vasquez. Other than that, it's this, this team, uh, this team's success is going to be very predicated on Bryce Harper's return and how he plays. And I think that the Phillies will be okay. I don't think they're going to win the NL East. I feel like that's either going to go to the Braves and if not the Braves, then the Mets, um, I think that the Phillies will be okay, though. They'll probably get a wild card spot, and you know, it, though it though if their starting pitching doesn't pick it up, and if their pitching overall doesn't pick it up, then you know they're going to they're probably not they're probably not gonna go to the playoffs. It's, it's gonna be a struggle too. And that is gonna that's gonna round it out for the uh, second episode of the CBiz Show. I really appreciate all of you guys listening, tuning into this. Uh, just wanted to update you guys on some stuff. As I said, as, or I, I alluded to it um, in the NFL section. <coughs> Excuse me. I alluded it to the, in the NFL section. Um, right now, I'm going to, uh, or right now, I'm doing research to make a mock draft for Monday's episode. I'm going to hit you guys with a mock draft for the upcoming NFL draft next Thursday. Let you know what my thoughts are on that. I'm going to be continue to bring you guys um playoff updates all that stuff um i'm also going to bring um i'm on on thursday i'm going to or friday excuse me i'm going to uh recap the first round and also continue to just do the normal stuff uh basically uh, a lot of stuff going on for the nfl draft but i did want to let you guys know um this is very important by the way so if you guys are listening to this to the very end um i'll be posting this on my social medias but I just want to let you guys know in this episode, after Friday's episode, next Friday's episode on the 28th, I'll be taking a, I'll be taking a break from podcasting for a little bit. Uh, I hope you guys can understand that I've got finals coming up for college classes and all that. And while I'm not too, I'm pretty confident in finals, though every college kid says they're confident in finals until they get hit with it. But right now, I feel pretty confident in um, finals. Um, I just wanted to take a break from podcasting to make sure it doesn't interfere with my work. And um, because obviously as a student, you know, studies come first. So I just want to let you guys know that from uh, after Friday, the 28th, when that episode comes out, there will be no more podcasting for at least the next couple weeks until um, until the semester is over and my finals are done. And when I move back home to Erie, and well, well, yeah, move back home to Erie, and then I'll be re, and then I'll um I'll be getting back to it on Monday. I'll let you guys know when that date will be, um, through my social medias. But just wanted to let you guys know the future ahead. I'm very thankful that you're all listening right now. And yeah, that is going to end the second episode of the CBS Show. I think thank you so much, for, guys, for listening. And with that being said, I'll see you all Monday. God bless. Have a great weekend, everyone.